Welcome to Hundreds of Ways, the podcast celebrating entrepreneurship and lifestyle independence. This week, we're joined by Stephen Wilcox, founder of Parkit, to talk about his experience designing, crowdfunding, and producing the world's greatest outdoor chair, the Voyager. So join us as we explore which of the Hundreds of Ways belongs to Stephen. Hey, James, good evening. Good evening, Elliot. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How about yourself? I am fantastic because today we have another wonderful guest, Stephen Wilcox. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Excited to be here and share the little story of Parkit. So Stephen is super exciting. Elliot's been hounding me literally since we started this podcast. We are 15, I think, episodes in now and, and Stephen is going to be our first product entrepreneur. So over the course of the show, we're, we'll probably deep dive a little bit on what makes service and product businesses different, especially since we've spent so much time talking to service entrepreneurs. But before we get into the, the nitty gritty, let's just keep it simple. Steven, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah. So my, uh, like you guys mentioned, my name is Stephen Wilcox. I'm the CEO and founder of Parkit. You can find us on the web at parkitmovement.com. We designed the ultimate outdoor chair, you know, and uh, we launched on Kickstarter this spring in the middle of the COVID panic. And despite, you know, launching an outdoor product at that time, we raised just under $500,000 on Kickstarter. And uh, now we're off to the races, making this a formal direct-to-consumer brand. So I definitely want to come back to some of the aspects that you touched on with funding. Since again, this is our first product product founder and funding is a big issue with products. You have to fund them before you can actually build them and sell them. Before mm, we get note, into kind of the... Note. <laughs> <laughs> before we get to... Yeah, that's step one. But before we get into the nitty gritty of all of this, uh, I really want to want to talk about... The chair. So, Stephen, tell me what makes this the perfect outdoor chair? Yeah, so the Voyager is the perfect outdoor chair for a number of reasons. But the number one, you know, is the problem that we wanted to solve was that the chairs on the market pretty much sucked. They were made of just like really poor materials. They were designed to basically be something you bought at the beginning of the summer season and then you threw away in a dumpster at the end of the summer season. And like, uh, you know, there's a longer story to this that I can get into later on in the podcast. But a buddy of mine just was sitting at a campsite with all of us about three years ago. And he sat down in his chair and the bottom just completely ripped out. And that was kind of the light bulb moment for me being like, we could build a better one of these, we could take it camping, we could take it surfing, this is where we can blend this lifestyle brand together. And then from there, we were like, all right, well, what's going to make it the best chair. Um, and we integrated, you know, aircraft grade aluminum for the frames. That makes it, you know, just a really industrial and long-lasting, durable product. The fabric is, you know, we were touching on in, in a way before we like started recording the podcast. It's built with like a polyester woven, like back it up a little bit. I'm kind of the polyester like that we use for the webbing is actually like soft to touch, and it's a woven polyester instead of that like hard kind of crunchy nylon that people are used to. And so that just provides you with a more comfortable seating experience. And then we get into some of the tech features that we put into it, which. We put a cooler directly underneath your seat instead of behind your back that you can actually access and reach and <laughs> look into and be like, oh, cool. Like I've, I've got five more beers left in here. Let's just reach down and grab one instead of having to do what I call like the Tyrannosaurus Rex, like reach to try and like get it back around <laughs> to try and grab a, something out of the back of your cooler. Um, and then well, our and coolers... It, and the and the other chairs too, you're risking like flipping over. You're risking like the chair like collapsing into you when you <laughs> yeah. when you do that like move too. Yeah, you're, you're doing this like really uncomfortable reach around. We were like, <laughs> we need to just not do that. And so, you know, we for the first thing we were like, we got to put the cooler underneath the chair. And then, you know, like the cooler itself is detachable. So it's really two products in one. And the cooler is, uh, it's insulated, it's welded. It has exterior pockets to hold your electronics, keys, phone, Make sure that those don't commingle with anything that you've got in the cooler. 
and it holds Smart. ice for eight plus hours. And so, you know, you, you really have this product that has all this different functionality that doesn't really exist yet. And then kind of the icing on the cake piece is uh, the cup holder. The cup holder is designed for coffee mugs, canteens, and your traditional, you know, beer can, soda can. And it's interchangeable from the left side to the right side. So if you're a lefty and you want your drink on your left hand, you can move the cup holder, pick it up, slide it over, drop it in. And it's, you know, got the versatility to put whatever it is that you want to want to consume while you're sitting around the fire. But does it fit entire wine bottles? Because that's going to be the selling point for me. If I can fit a whole wine bottle right here in my left hand, then... <laughs> they can fit one of those like classic hydro flask canteens. So if this guy could fit in it, then uh, I'm pretty sure your wine bottle is going to sit right in there perfectly fine. I, I think it'll be fine. That's great. We I think found it would be perfect out. for a bottle of enough. those like kind of higher, not higher end, but like vertical Vino Verde bottles. It'll yeah, be good perfect. to go. Summertime yeah. will be yeah, great. Like the Alvarino super, super narrow bottle you see here. Narrow, that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Perfect. I love because especially in startups and, and, and product startups, people talk about these eureka moments, right? These like, oh, I was at the office and I was having this tough day or, but like your friend falling through a chair, man, that like, that is a eureka moment, right? Like there's a, there's a physical act that is occurring that is spurring this idea. I love did, that. Did you guys sit down and have a conversation after that? Did you say like, I want to do this or is it more just kind of started mulling over in your head? It definitely started mulling over. Like my background to give you guys some kind of like idea of it. I went to school and uh, went to school at Chapman University. And then after school, I went into the marketing world and I was working with Oakley and Quicksilver. That's just like been my life is what those brands do and what those brands stand for. And always knew that like my career would take me in a, in a place where I'm either like a marketing director within one of those brands or I've built my own. And this was kind of the light bulb moment where I realized we could build that brand around that product just because of the nature and the way that people use the product, you know, like Yeti came out and proved to everyone, like we can make coolers really freaking cool. And, you know, like the difference between a Billabong t-shirt and a Quicksilver t-shirt is really just the, the messaging that connects with that person's audience. And being that that's what I've done for the last 10 years, I was like, we can definitely do that around this product. And that was really the light bulb moment of like, you can combine all the skills that you have that you use professionally. We just need to build this product and this chair is going to be the one that is. I love that too, because one of the things we talk about here is, is lifestyle independence, right? And, and entrepreneurship is a vehicle that allows you to travel or for me to, to live abroad. For you, it's, it's you had this dream of building a, a, a lifestyle brand around outdoor sports. And this chair was the vehicle because on its own, a chair, it's a chair, right? Like the chair itself isn't necessarily the fun part, but everything that it enables you to do and everything that it lets you just spend all this time and energy on. I mean, that's what's so cool about it. Yeah, you couldn't have said it better myself. You know, like, like the way that we view it is like, it's much like one of our taglines is it's more than a chair. And when we say that it's, it's, we're not referencing the features that the chair has, we're referencing what the chair symbolizes. And for us, that symbolism is, you know, it's the three of us not having this conversation on, on a Zoom call. It's the three of us sitting around a fire and I'm learning about your guys' backgrounds and the stories that make you guys who you are. And we're bridging those lines and making those community bonds stronger. And we're getting to know one another on a personal level, which is hard to do nowadays. We have coronavirus that's keeping people, you know, for the most part, stay six feet away. You have digital media and it's things like Instagram and Facebook, where we've taken the personal connection away from a lot of our interactions. And chairs, you know, number one, facilitate those personal interactions. They're the, they're the facilitators of boardroom meetings. They're the facilitators of birthday backyard bar- barbecues. How many times have you guys, you know, had an event where you're sitting next to your grandfather and he's telling you a huge story and he's sitting in his classic living room chair? 
And so for us, you know, the park at Voyager chair isn't just something that is going to be fun to have when you go fishing or when you go surfing or when you're putting on your snow boots, you know, sitting at the bottom of the lodge in Mammoth. It's something that is going to be really, you know, the facilitator of all of those experiences for your life. For those who can't see uh, our conversation, we're actually video chatting right now. Steven's sitting and behind him, he has this surfboard and a wetsuit hanging up and it tells, it's very telling about his kind of lifestyle and culture and persona in a way. It tells certain things. So I did love how you kind of extrapolate on what a chair can be because when you think about it, it's just a physical object. But as you mentioned, like Yeti has done, build this amazing lifestyle brand around something so simple but has then grown into having such value. So Stephen, can we back up and rewind for a second and just take us back? You touched on it briefly, but to where you started out. You said you were at Chapman's, I believe it's Argyle School of Business, and you graduated from there and went into the marketing world. Can you just kind of recap through what your experiences were prior to starting Parkit and what got you to where you are now? Yeah, so uh, the first like major marketing role that I landed outside of college was on the marketing team at Oakley. I was tasked on the, uh, the wholesale marketing team where my job was to manage a bunch of the marketing efforts that went on with our surf, skate, snow shops across the country in Canada. Um, so, you know, that was a really insane experience. Oakley is a machine. You know, there's a reason the company was sold to Luxottica for the amount of billions of dollars that it was. Like just learned a lot about process efficiencies and also like what made Oakley's marketing so unique. After Oakley jumped over to Quicksilver, was over there for a little bit of time and was with Quicksilver in a completely opposite environment. Within the first week and a half of being on the team at Quicksilver, the company filed bankruptcy. <laughs> so, you know, went from went from one company that was like, we just sold a Luxottica for billions and billions of dollars. Uh, the next one, hey, we're Quicksilver. And we used to be this like multi, almost billion. They may have been a billion dollar company at one point when I'm they were sure trading on the New York Stock point, Exchange. Yeah. And it's like, hi, we're filing Chapter 11. <laughs> and like, I'm like 24 years old being like, uh, mom, uh, the company filed bankruptcy. I don't know if I'm flying up to see you for your birthday this year. Fortunately, right. it all worked out. Chapter 11, I learned, is about restructuring and versus the Chapter 7, which is like, we're closing the doors. But those two ex- <laughs> those two experiences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for those two experiences and a distinction I did not necessarily think I needed to know, but uh, the, right. those two experiences like kind of showed me like, this is what it takes on one end to be like a really successful business. And this is the processes and the procedures that are in place to like, you know, almost operate like in a military function with a lot of fun. And then the other ones, like, this is what happens when you're like a really big brand and you lose a little bit of control over like the processes that are in place and what that can do over to all like your brand equity, what it can do to your like ability to, to sell through what it does, what you have to dig yourself out of. And I think the really important piece of the puzzle between those two brands that led to entrepreneurship for me was digging Quicksilver out of that hole. Like Quicksilver went from being like the icon of the surf industry to, oh no, you're the, like, basically you got to go to rehab in some sort of way, you know? <laughs> yeah, financial rehab, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're going to financial <laughs> rehab. And as a, as a brand builder, it's your job to, to bring the brand back. And uh, the team that I worked on, like, we learned so much about the things that we did wrong in the past that we had to correct. And so it gave me kind of this, like, one, you know how to run a machine. Two, you know the errors that this massive corporation made that you won't need to, that you will hopefully avoid. And then the final piece of the puzzle was just like seeing it succeed was like, if you can make this succeed here, you can make this succeed anywhere. And having that revelation was the moment I had that revelation at about the same time my buddy fell through the chair. And I was like, <laughs> what a coincidence. 
I was like, well, this is, this is well-timed. And so that, <laughs> that led into, you know, the building of the company. And that's, that's the background story. So you said you launched everything mid-COVID, if you will. Was, was that around that same time? Or had you been working on this prior to the COVID outbreak in February 2020? Yeah, so we had been working on this. We had been working on this really. I had been mulling over the idea since about late 2017. 2018 was when um, I spent the first year actually trying to design the product myself. And I was just like driving around Southern California, knocking on the doors of woodworkers and different metal shops being like, can you guys help me build this? And they're like, kid, you're crazy. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Just catch you guys later. It wasn't until like the fall of 2018 that I put a note up on LinkedIn and it was like, hey guys, have a consumer goods product. Don't want to get into the details of it, but who knows how to design this? And a good buddy of mine from Oakley just like messaged me and said, I just built a product. These are the guys you need to connect with them. And they're a company in Utah called Klugonics. And they're specifically like product and industrial design. And got on the phone with their founder, Jason Klug. And I just kind of like presented to him like the vision for the brand and the vision for the product. And he was like, I freaking love it. Like, let's build this thing. And like, you know, it's, it's a risky thing as an entrepreneur to like, look at that, that conversation and go, okay, I'm about to give you like all of my savings account to design <laughs> this product. Like, who are you? I don't know a whole lot about you, but I got the yeah. reference from a buddy of mine. So there's that little bit of trust factor there. And oh my God, they knocked it out of the freaking park. I got, I got to learn later because they're working on their marketing as well. Like Jason's a product designer by trade. I'm a marketing guy by trade. So we like bounced some ideas off of each other over the last couple of years. But their idea is, you know, bring us your napkin sketch and we'll bring it to life. Right, right. And they absolutely did that. And, you know, for the last all, basically all of 2019, we refined and built a prototype and we refined and we figured out how certain features need to function. And so that's really what started like the product design process to get us to, you know, pre-launch COVID. And we were slated to launch on Kickstarter on March 18th, which if anyone can really oh remember. Oh my goodness. What the a day. Yeah, the economy was told to shut down on March 16th and everyone yeah. got sad because St. Patrick's Day was gone. And so I'm, I'll never forget it. I'm driving and I'm like listening to these different podcasts and, and books that are talking about entrepreneurship and like how to manage these types of challenges. And it's always like persist, like put your head down, trudge <laughs> through the mud. And so I'm like, all right, we're just going to do this. We're just going to launch. And my brother calls me and he goes, are you sure you want to do this? And I'm like, why? And he like hits me with the like, this is what's going on. I know that you're in your bubble of entrepreneurship, but like, this is what I'm experiencing. And I think you might want to slow this thing down. So we canceled the Kickstarter pain campaign, like literally 24 hours before we were supposed to launch. Wow. So sorry, when you say you canceled, so this is at the end then of the, of the Kickstarter fundraising period? No, no. This is before we've even launched on Kickstarter. This okay, is so this like is, the, you, can't, you pulled the plug before it went live on Kickstarter. Okay. Yeah. So we pulled the plug like 24 hours before we went live on Kickstarter. And, you know, I'm glad we did because everyone was yeah. panicking, buying toilet paper, like people were <laughs> fighting over eggs in the supermarket. Like when we think back about it, it was a crazy freaking time. And to launch yeah. a product that was going to be an outdoor product specifically focused on enjoying the outdoors, which we were being told by every authority, don't go do that. <laughs> yeah, none of the lab. Yeah, you could that, have pivoted and turned the cooler into a toilet paper holder. <laughs> honestly, like I was, I, I kind of like, I hit cancel and I'll never forget it. We hit cancel. The bars hadn't shut down in Oceanside yet. Like they were, things were starting to close. And we all go out to this bar down the street on PCH and they've got a Rolling Stones cover band playing and we're having a good time. And I get the notification on my phone that says that like Mammoth Mountain and all Icon Pass locations are now closed. And I just had like <laughs> the ultimate like gut drop of like, we're never coming back from this. Like this whole idea is dead. <laughs> so 
I have to interrupt you because just a fun note there. I was at Mammoth Mountain that night. It was Saturday <laughs> night. We were supposed to go up on the lift. It would, had been too windy, so they shut down the mountain on Saturday. And we were just up there for the weekend. So, we're like, oh, we'll get Sunday in at least. And then they shut the mountain down on Sunday. So, <laughs> I was on the <laughs> other end of the coast. God, yeah, no, I, re- I remember seeing all that coming through and just being like, like, it was like, oh, well, if everything's shut down and no one has to go to the office, like, let's just go snowboarding during the week. Like, it's cold. <laughs> the virus can't live. It turns out that didn't get to be what we got to do. But, like, God, like, you know, being in the position that we were in, like, I really thought this was kind of like the beginning of the end, like, really fast. Being like, <laughs> sure. all right, well, I guess we weren't supposed to do this. So, we put out one of those emails that was like, due to the circumstances with COVID, like, we're going to be posting back our Kickstarter campaign. And we sat on it for about six weeks. And during those six weeks, you know, like consumer behavior started to adjust, the panic started to alleviate, and it gave us actually some time to do some refining. And like, we started to recognize like, hey, this return to normalcy is happening. It's not happening in the the corporate world. Like people are still, you know, working from home. Uh, There's still questions about whether or not these snow resorts are going to be even able to stay open the entirety of the year. And we've got the New England Patriots having to reschedule their football games every week. So you know, like, like there's still the variables in the world that we're dealing with today. But, you know, at that time, I started to recognize that people are crowding like crazy at these beaches in Southern California. Campsites are filling up like crazy. And I had like this just whole like kind of like epiphany moment of I have I'm having trouble finding parking near my house. And I never have that. <laughs> like even in on holiday weekends, Fourth of July, I don't have trouble finding parking at my house. And it's because everybody was doing they were just getting outside. Right. And I mean, if you can't go to the movies, uh, you can't go to bars, you can't, you know, I mean, you, what are you going to do? You're going to hang out yeah. in a chair <laughs> with a beer. I mean, so it, in a weird way, it's almost like you timed it perfectly. Exactly. And so it went from being like the worst timing ever in March <laughs> to the most perfect timing ever in May. And so we launched on May 6th and we did $75,000 on our very first day. And I was kind of like, Oh wow. my goodness. Uh, we thought we were going to do like $75,000 at the end of like the first 10 to 10 days to two weeks. And to see that happen on day one, I was like, we just tapped into something really special. And you know, a lot of it has to do with like the product that we designed and, and the features that are built into it. We know people were really like anxious for something that was built better and, and to see something better on the market. But I also think a huge piece of it was just like our mission and our brand and what we stand for and and people resonating with that at a time where everything was saying you can't have that anymore. And it was kind of like a glimmer of hope, I think, for people to be like, a return to normalcy can come and I want this product to be a part of it. And and we ourselves as a brand, we want Parkit to be a part of that return to normalcy. So, you know, went from the worst situation ever to the best situation ever, literally within the span of 30 days, which is, that's the definition of entrepreneurship, if you ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Adaptability. I think that's the core pillar that I get out of that. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, looking back, it looks like this perfect timing almost is luck. But the reason why you guys were able to hit it when you saw it get hot was because of all of the preparation you guys had done up to that point. And so, we touched a little on this. I'd like to back up and talk. So, this is what makes products unique and especially physical products. I mean, on the product scale, apps are products too. They require a lot less upfront investment and risk, I would say, than physical products. So, you talked about designing this first yourself or trying to at least then you got someone an industrial design team in let's talk about that process how many revisions did you go through how long did that take because that's that's really what makes physical products unique yep yeah so we we started that process with that in design firm in probably august or september of 2018 
And we had our first prototype by January 2019. And, you know, like the prototype itself, like this is one of the things that I think a lot of people who get into product design aren't aware of. I know I certainly wasn't when I got into it. Prototyping is maybe one of the most expensive things that you're going to do. Like, yeah, the, the contract for the product design firm is X amount of dollars. Let's just, you know, we use easy numbers. Um, let's say it's 10,000 to go through ideation and design for manufacturing. And that gets you to the point where you're ready to actually purchase a prototype and, and go through that fulfillment process. But that prototype itself is going to be like seven to $8,000 and it's only one unit. And you're like, you only, not only do you have to use this unit for all of your marketing, but you have to use it for all of your product research. So like you're buying this to destroy it, but keep it in good enough shape that you can use it for photos and like advertising purposes. And yeah, so that process is like really, really cumbersome. And there's a lot of ups and downs in it with like every little fine tooth detail that you're going to remember and, and think about. And like, you know, we're still making final adjustments right now because we're starting our production run probably at the end of the month with our factories. And there's just a little thing here that the factory comes back and goes, hey, this isn't going to work because this isn't how the machine works. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> well, let's go tweak this piece. Like, you know, and so you're constantly refining. And I think that's the biggest thing is it's like, like if you had to describe the product design process in like really one simple experience, I think everyone can relate to. Imagine writing your essays in high school and your teacher tells you to write a first draft and a second draft and a third draft before your final draft. In product design, there's like 50. And so you just go through all of those things like there's just like, nonstop. There's like 50 and the way that they fail is sometimes surprising and unexpected. So one of my first jobs out of college was at a robotics company and we built a little robotics platform that, that your phone plugged into. And you would build something in SolidWorks. I would not build something in SolidWorks. Our, our industrial designers would build something in SolidWorks and it would look great. In SolidWorks, it would move correctly and then you go build it and, oh, well, it works good with the iPhone 4, but when you put the iPhone 5 in it, that extra height is too much weight up top and it tips the whole platform over. And that's something that you can't really predict until you, you have it in front of you. And so, it's, it's not just that it's 50 drafts, it's that draft 10 failed because the thing flipped over and you had no idea of knowing that before you spent, again, this huge amount of money to do it. Yep. And then also all the external factors that you don't know are going to come to markets for, uh, I'd say in your case, like we were talking about what fits into the can holder. You don't know that next year, the white claw can design is going to be three <laughs> times as big. And so it's not going to fit. So you have to go back and redesign it. I mean, there are all sorts of unknowns that you're having to deal with that are beyond your control. Yep. Uh, there's so many of those. And I think, you know, to your example there, James was perfect. Like, we we built out the first prototype and the cup holders jetted out straight, you know, like they were directly in front of you. Well, that means if you want to sit and you like spread your knees out to the side, like you hit the cup holder, which means if you've got something tall in it and it's top heavy, that thing's falling over. And so, you know, you find these little things over and over and over again that need to be refined and, and you know, you get it to basically like 98% the way and the final 2% is like watching the final two minutes of an NBA finals game where they, everyone starts fouling each other and it takes forever. But we're super excited about it. And it's been, you know, hands down, the most challenging thing I think I've ever tasked myself with was getting that product to reality and, and having it like, we've got the prototype, it's in the back of my car, and we take it places and we shoot photos with it. And I still sit in it. 
But that thing has been that that prototype itself too has been flown to and from China three times. It's not, it, that thing has more miles, I think, than any normal human right now during the coronavirus. <laughs> so it's been to China three times this year. It's been to Utah twice this year. It's been to Washington. It's been driven around all of California. Like that thing has been put through the freaking ringer, and it still <laughs> looks just as good when we're shooting photos of it. So you know, it's super rewarding to like see it and have it be what we wanted it what we wanted it to be and, and achieve the goal that we set out for. But, oh, man, the ups and downs of getting that thing perfect the way that we needed to. Like, uh, definitely underestimated, you know, like Oakley and Quicksilver, my job was to build the creative stuff and have a lot of fun building it. We didn't think <laughs> at all of the little intricacies that went into that sunglass hinge or, like, why that sew line needed to be right there on a wetsuit. Like, I got to say that, you know, hands off to product developers. They are patient and thoughtful people. And they, they, they're the reason that, you know, everything we use works the way that it does. Yeah, I, I scream a lot at Photoshop when I'm using it. And Photoshop, like, that's kindergarten level <laughs> difficulty compared to what these product designers do. I love your note there about how this chair has been all over the place. And I feel like that right there could be your marketing campaign when you guys <laughs> launch next year. Like this chair's literally traveled the world and I can still sit in it and it works just as good as new. That's a fun little ad, right? You have the, yeah. the, the chair like getting on the plane and like <laughs> handing his passport. One of, one of the fun made things it are... economy flights to and from China it can do anything. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, the, uh, the, one of the funny things we did do before COVID was we were up in Tahoe and a bunch of one of my buddies is a he's a sales rep for an agency and he won a sales award and we got to use like a huge house in Tahoe that was awarded to him. And, you know, 15 of us packed into the place and I brought the chair. I'm like, there's 15 of my friends here. We got the chair. We need some content. Like, let's go do, let's go crazy with the Tahoe stuff. And one of my buddies was like, do you want to take this on the mountain? And I'm like, nobody really snowboards with a chair, but sure, let's do it. And so we like brought it up and he snowboarded down the mountain and was like hitting jumps and going through the trees, like with the chair on his back. Perfect. And it's some of like the coolest shots ever. And then, you know, you put that stuff out in, in public and like you, you pr to promote it and you always have like the one guy who's just like way too real about everything that he sees. And he's like, <laughs> no one's going to go snowboarding with a chair on their back. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you, you're probably right. 99% of our consumers are probably not going to get on a chairlift and bring their chair with them. <laughs> but for the 1% of people who like, you know, want to take a chair with them backcountry skiing and sit at the top of the mountain and enjoy a couple beers before they drop down into the powder bowl that they've just hiked. Like, <laughs> it's possible. I'm just like, you know, it's a thing that you can do. And it's a it be it feeds into the lifestyle that we want to emulate and that we want to promote. And that's just having fun with your friends outdoors. And so it's been fun, you know, the different things that we've been able to do so far. And I can't wait to see what we get to do in the future. Maybe there's an airplane trip in store for us <laughs> where the chair gets its own seat and we talk about how far it's traveled. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I, I can actually see if you're going like skinning up a mountain and you get to the top and you want to hang out for a little bit or backcountry and you need a chair along. I mean, you know, it's it's possible. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say, you know, do it on a day where you're not going to have uh, like any avalanche problems because otherwise you're going to want that backpack that can make your little like cocoon for you and so you, you survive but if you got like a simple day and you want to just go cruise and you know you can do all that so it's cool do, do we need a legal disclaimer here is that something that needs to go in <laughs> oh, we'll look I don't know. Advice. yeah, yeah um, no we're not here to promote we're not necessarily promoting the uh the snowboarding <laughs> we're promoting the enjoyment of the snowboarding for sure for sure we're promoting Perfect. the smile not the activity <laughs> So we've talked about the development process and you mentioned that you funded the, the industrial design yourself, but now you're in production 
And again, not to going to reiterate this, even though it's obvious at this point, but when you sell physical products, you have to make them. And you guys went with a pretty popular fundraising route, I would say, especially nowadays. You funded the shares production through Kickstarter. Can you talk about the Kickstarter process, about uh, what what sort of prep you guys did beforehand, uh, the actual you know thirty day kind of fundraising period, and then and then obviously now that it's over, what what that after math looks like. Yeah. So the Kickstarter process is hands down the reason, you know, why we're able to build this brand today. Product design, as you mentioned, is expensive. It's uh, it's not exactly like the service industry. I, I do a lot of service industry stuff as well. Still, I still consult as a brand consultant. I build Shopify websites, shoot content. I do all of those things for a lot of smaller brands to help, you know, keep money coming in. Because uh, when you're launching a business, you're reinvesting all of your sales into the business, you know, like they like, we did $500,000 in sales on Kickstarter. I didn't get to see any of that for my own personal self. That all went straight into product. That went straight into the people that helped us get it to that $500,000 level. And so, you know, the biggest difference between the two of them is that, you know, service industry, you are what you say you are. Like your work, your work is your word. And on the product side, like the quality of your product is either what's going to make or break you. And to have a high quality product, it takes a lot of capital and a lot of resources to really get that thing moving. And in order to be successful, you need, you know, funding and you're either going to source that funding through an investor or you're going to source that funding through crowdfunding. You know, I will always recommend crowdfunding to everyone because what crowdfunding allows you to do is validate your idea and generate some form of financial revenue that you can tie to the business that the next step, let's say I came to you guys and was like, hey, James, Elliot, we're raising capital for Park It. I now have sales figures to work against. I can say that within 30 days, we did $500,000 in sales. Uh, This was our profit margin. These were these pieces of the puzzle. So this is our valuation. And you can get in for 10% at this price. You know, like we get to do that shark tank negotiation with real hard numbers. Without that, you basically are going to an investor without crowdfunding. You're basically going to an investor and you're saying, Hey, we have this really great product idea and we think it's going to cost $500,000 to start, but we think this is a, $5 $5 million company. So here's 10%. And they're like, ha, you have no sales to prove that valuation. And you just have to go through this like kind of boxing match with an investor where you as the you as the creator have to hand off percentage and ownership of your baby. And so, you know, that's the number one reason why I think anyone who's interested in product design should do a Kickstarter is that you get to own that process and you have so much more ammunition kind of in your gun when you go to source for funding. It just makes that process a lot better. In terms of preparing for the Kickstarter, uh, real quick, um, I just want to I just want to talk about the the VC thing real quick because it's a it's a thing that Elliot and I talk a lot about. And when guests sometimes we get guest requests from people who are product founders like you, but they're they're VC backed, they're investor backed, and we usually are not interested in that. And one of the reasons why is that this show is about entrepreneurship, yes, but it's also about lifestyle independence. And like Stephen just said, when you take on early funding. Before you've had the chance to prove yourself, you are also basically taking on a boss that is more interested in seeing a return on their investment than in your vision, than in your lifestyle. And so for us, the the VC funded route, it can work and it, and it can be great for a business, but it's at the risk of that lifestyle independence. And so that's why when, when we heard about Steven, it was like, yes, we definitely want him on the show because this is the difference between going with crowdfunding and going with investor back is that when you crowdfund or when you self-finance or finance through your service business, like Steven's still doing, that means that your business is yours and that the decisions you make are yours 
and that you're not handing off control to someone who really at the end of the day isn't going to be aligned with you. So Stephen, sorry to, to derail the conversation there for a second, but it's just something that I think is super important. And and I really admire companies like yours that, that have been able to pull this off. Yeah. And, and something to add to that, because, you know, Parkit will at some point need to take in funding. Like it's just the nature of the game. Like I was just listening to a podcast on rad power bikes. And if anyone's listening and like, you know, is into the entrepreneurship thing on a product, like listen to their story as well. They did five years scaled to 200 million in sales and they hadn't taken on zero funding. It's an incredible story of entrepreneurship. And speaking to what James was just saying about how it's like all around your own lifestyle design. But like they had to go do it at one point because it's just part of the necessity of growing the business and getting it to the size that, you know, it wants to naturally be. And in doing so, like when you're lurking, when you're talking to that founder or you're talking to that VC or that investor, you want to make sure that they fully understand your vision. You could have the, like the, the guy with the most money in the world. If he does not understand your vision, you will not be successful. They need to understand like what the mission of the business is, the imagery for the business, the brand of the business, the direction it's headed and where it's going to be in exactly and as close of alignment with you as you possibly can. And that's where you're forging a team. You're not just creating a piggy bank. And that's something that I see a lot of people that are starting to do entrepreneurship. They think, oh, VC funding. And, you know, you can't take the first guy that offers you the money because there's a really good chance that that guy might not be the right fit for your business. So I think that's a good disclaimer for us to throw in here. But circling back to Kickstarter. Sorry, well, just one little thing. Sorry. <laughs> so one of the things he even just said too, just because I just want to reiterate on it is you may think that your vision is strong enough that your brand and the, the product product vision that you have, all those things are strong enough that you can just go do it. You can go get funding and the VC is just going to get it. But if you haven't proven anything like Steven has here with with this killer Kickstarter that they did. No matter how strong you think your vision is, the VC is going to chew it up and spit it out. And so spending some time and getting some traction on your own, again, if that's through, through crowdfunding or through self-funding, then when you do have that conversation and you're, and you're going to have that kind of battle between you and your investors about your vision, you've got a track record. You have proof that the thing that you're talking about is has worked, not as just going to work. And so it's it's a little bit easier to to make that argument in the future. So no, just really quick, I'll throw in from a personal level, you also have your own self confidence knowing that you're not just hawking a bunch of hooey. It's like, you know, (laughs) that there's some value in what you're doing. And it's been validated, like you are able to actually stand up to these investors. I don't know why I did air quotes, but (laughs) able to stand up to these investors who, uh, I mean, that can be an intimidating process when you're doing it for the first time. And I know from experience from friends who have done it or from colleagues who have done it as well, of just that is a very challenging process. So having that validation internally also can be a real value add uh, just for yourself. Yeah, yeah, you couldn't have said it better, you guys. Like, it just it gives you so much more power as the the startup than um, you know than traditionally existed. But to circle it back, you know, to what you need to do to be in that corner. To like, how how do you end up in a meeting with a VC and you get to say, "Hey, man, like, we did five hundred thousand in sales in thirty days. Products validated." Give us the get, Kickstarter breakdown. How do you get there? So, um, step one is your product has your your project has to have a soul. The Kickstarter community is, they're a group of early adopters. And when you look at like the early adoption curve and you see, you know, that really slow flat line at the beginning, they're that slow flat line. And they are super passionate about like seeing products and projects that they can relate to and they recognize the mission of it and they want to be a part of. 
You know, like imagine if I told you guys you all got to invest in Apple back when Steve Jobs came back to the helm. Like Steve Jobs built a company with soul, you know, and Kickstarter consumers in the same way, they look at types of things like that. They want to see that this is a long-term project, really well thought out, a really like sound business idea and product idea. They're not there for the quick buck. And I've seen campaigns on Kickstarter that during coronavirus are like, hey, we're going to do this because of health things. And this is the way that the world's changed. <laughs> Great product idea, but you did it for a quick buck and the Kickstarter community saw right through you. And that's where that failed. And so the important piece that I think, you know, is like, what does it take to build a project with soul? And that is building a project months and months and months of, in advance. And so what we did with Parkit is we launched our Instagram account in May of 2019. We didn't even have the, we had our, we'd only had our first prototype at that point. We knew we still had a long way to go with product, but we knew what our mission was and we, and it was time to just, Hey, let's start posting about our lifestyle and what the brand stands for and start building that community. And so a year in advance, you know, we started posting we started following people. We started, we launched our website and it was more engaged around like travel and experience and like getting outside and and that started to kind of bring people into the fold. And, you know, and you talk about the funnel that was filling the top of our funnel. Um, and we were getting people to sign up on email. We were getting people to follow on Facebook. We were getting people to follow pretty much everywhere. You mentioned earlier that you, you know, when you canceled the Kickstarter, that you emailed everybody. And, yeah. and that means that you have to have everyone's emails, right? Which, which takes months of work. Yeah, like, like to give you guys perspective, we had 15,000 emails before the launch of our Kickstarter campaign because of all the work that we did a year in advance building up like what the business and what the brand stood for. And if you've never built an email list before, that is an impressive number of emails for an unlaunched product. That, that, is, a, that is a lot of work. Yeah. We also ran some paid ads to help with that. And that was more so like about three months beforehand. But, you know, like we spent the, the later half of 2019 building that audience organically, then from the organic sources, we were able to understand what profiles kind of fit our audience. And then we kind of transitioned to the digital side where it was like, hey, we're coming to Kickstarter this year. This is our product. Here's some sneak peek teaser videos. Like, Get ready to do everything that we've been talking about for the last seven months with one of our products. And you know that's where we started putting paid advertising into the, into the mix, solely focused on email conversion and getting people lined up into our email list. And then throughout that, you know, it's, it's a very nurturing campaign throughout that. Like if you're brand new to us and you found us on an ad and you signed up for our emails, like the first email was a direct note from me, like talking about like what this brand was going to stand for. The next email had to do with the product and it had to do with like, this is why this product, you know, we spoke about it already, the symbolism of the chair, not just that it's a chair. The next email had to do with like, so why is it important for you? And it had to do with the features of the product. And so we nurtured these guys like everyone who opted into our campaign, we nurtured them from like everything aspect of the business to the part where it's like, you're not just buying from a company, you're a part of our company. And so when we launched on Kickstarter, you know, that nurture campaign that we built, like really, really engaged with a lot of people. And I think, you know, the very first day of that 75,000 that we raised, about 50% of that came from our email audience and our Instagram audience and the community that we had built that was ready for it to launch. Yeah. And in Kickstarter, like that's a very, very important metric to hit early in your campaign. Kickstarter has an algorithm built into it. And, you know, there's thousands and thousands of projects on Kickstarter. And when you hit your goal really, really fast and your, your page is getting a lot of site traffic and you're like, all those metrics are, are peaking, right? Well, Kickstarter 
in the same sense of you using the right hashtags on an Instagram post, you know, you'll be like, oh, 150 likes, 150 likes, boom, you use the right hashtags and it gets like 15,000 likes. Kickstarter does the same thing. If you use the right combination leading up to your campaign, you hit a bunch of traffic, you have a, your goal hit super fast, you go trending on Kickstarter. And now your now your project is on the homepage of Kickstarter. So anyone who types in kickstarter.com and wants to go see what's on Kickstarter today, they're seeing your project. And that was one of the pieces to the puzzle that our nurture campaign, like the goal of it all was to, hey, like we want to engage these people and get them infused with our brand and our mission. But we also need like the back end of this, like the the kind of the financial side of it is this needs to happen in order for this to happen. And that's, that's exactly the way that it went. And so, you know, to kind of reiterate the point, nurture the campaign, start early, make it a project about soul. And when you launch, you know, when those people start to convert and they become the sales and that's driving all the traffic to your page, you want to get picked up by Kickstarter. And, and that's really where you get to see this exponential growth. And this gets to something that we've talked about a lot on the show, which is kind of this myth of the overnight success. This ignoring the work that you guys to did to build the product because you have to do that anyways. You could have done that silently in a room with no one knowing. You guys spent a year putting in work, growing an audience and preparing for the sale. It looks like this thing showed up on Kickstarter and you sold, what did you say, 50,000 the first day? 75,000 the first day. 75,000 the first day. And it looks like you just like, we're like, hey, we've got a chair and people were like, yes. But really... You built up this momentum and you built this enthusiasm into the it. brand. Right. Brand building. Yeah. And so it gets really to this, you know, they're really in business are no overnight successes. What it is, is that people like Steven put in the work ahead of time. They're able to build up a reputation or an audience or a brand, however you want to describe it. And they're able to capitalize on that overnight. Yeah, what feels overnight. I, I'll never forget the uh, the night before the Kickstarter campaign. My girlfriend is uh, she's a sales manager for an insurance company, and she's incredibly good at what she does from a from a negotiating and sales sales standpoint. She's not necessarily like the creative like uh, entrepreneurial side of things, and she was staying up with me like basically till like two four o'clock in the morning every night like, the week before we launched. Just like, do you have this done? 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 Like running through the checklist with me. And uh, the night before we launched, like she fell asleep at like three o'clock in the morning and we launched at like five o'clock in the morning. And I just remember looking over and just being like, Jesus, I have no idea how like we would have done all of this, just one person. And so, you know, like just having having that extra hands of, of everybody that can be involved in it, it just allows you to check different boxes and, and make sure that the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and, and, it's con- and you have confidence going into it that helps. But oh my God. The, the, the questions that like she was sleeping and I'm like, you, you deserve this. You need to rest. <laughs> oh crap. I have to wake you up. I don't know what to do about this. And, like, <laughs> you know, there's, and this is like, this is like two hours before you go live. And so, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's got the roller coaster, but man, like, you know, there's no, there's nothing more thrilling than seeing your idea get validated and knowing like all the work that we put in has been worth it. In a little bit, it's kind of like watch. It's kind of like winning a championship, except now the work really has begun. And I'll get into that. <laughs> right, right. You know, like 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 you see it succeed, and you're like, wow, we have tons of sales. Yes, what do we do next? The real work begins, and now you're right. talking the factories, and you're figuring out logistics, and you're learning the different cost of ocean freight, and then you got the tariffs <laughs> that come into play, and then like we we sold to some international customers, so we have a handful of units that we have to figure out how to get to Europe and Australia <laughs> and other areas of Asia, and it's like. Whew, okay, uh, like we won the championship. Basically, what happens is you get drafted. 
And now, <laughs> right, right. and now, hey, like, you know, like when you see a Heisman Trophy winner go into the NFL, they typically struggle their first year. You know, welcome to the big leagues, kid. That's kind of the, <laughs> that's kind of the stage we're in now is welcome to the big leagues. And it's a challenge, but they're new the challenges. 300-pound linebacker just decks you right under the ground. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, that 300-pound linebacker in consumer goods right now is the 25% <laughs> tariffs on anything coming in from China. So, it's yeah. like, it's like, cool. Like, we have this great product. It's priced here and this is solid. Then you go back to the like you you raise all the capital like this is you know like to kind of where park it is now post Kickstarter because Kickstarter was exciting you know like you're getting all the sales you wake up every day you see the number bump up a little bit more and that was all you know like kind of rainbows and unicorns <laughs> but but then you get the then you get the cash from Kickstarter and you get that check and you're like wow like I've never held a check like this and you you put it into the bank account for the business and then you start paying the bills. And that cash goes so fast. Uh, like the amount of time it took for us to be like, okay, we owe these agencies this capital. We owe these commissions to these people. We owe the PR guy this much. Uh, our product design and legal bills are here. And before you know it, you're like, all right, cool. We only have the enough money now for product advertising. And well, let's get this done. Let's get this going. And then you find out these new things that come up along the way and you have to continue growing sales in some capacity to keep cash flow coming. And it's it's definitely a completely different ball game post Kickstarter than it was pre Kickstarter. But you know, as with anything, it, it just takes it's learning and you just have to put your head down and be persistent and find the best solutions. My grandpa's a blackjack player and one of the things he always says that is one of my favorite just little aphorisms of life is you win and lose at the table you play at. And as a business owner myself, when we started growing and it's not even close to the numbers that you guys are talking about, but when we had, I think it, uh, at most we had like 10 contractors working for us and you're getting all this money and you're spending all this money. And for me, I mean, even after a year of that, like it never really went away. This kind of fear of like, okay, but I'm just I'm like $15,000 just went out the door in like a moment. Like, even though I know that it's paid for and that I'm going to make more money, like those numbers as they scale up, I feel like they just, I mean, for me at least, it just never got better watching lots of money going out the door, even if I knew that that was because I was making more money as part of it, right? Yeah. And and the perfect example of that is ad spend. Like, <laughs> like ad spend is such a uncomfortable change for anyone who's never done it. And like a great example of this is just like one, the, the tools of Facebook and Instagram and Google and the, the way that they're able to direct your ad spend and optimize your ads. Like I can't imagine how we would have done this business without them. My uncle called me after we decided to cancel the Kickstarter and he's old school business guy. He runs a, a printing company where he went and knocked the doors of businesses and <laughs> convinced them to use his services for their printing needs, right? And so I tell him like, yeah, we got to stop the Kickstarter. Coronavirus is crazy. He's like, well, you, you got to go knock doors. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you want me to go knock on the doors of the surf shops in the area and like go, go be like, hey, like REI, I know you're closed, but like, do you guys want to buy some product? And he's like, yeah, you got to go do that. I'm like, oh, but we don't. We have 15,000 people in our email list yeah. ready to buy. And he like didn't really get it. And, um, and he was, he like, he kept calling me and he's like, you need to go, like, you need to go knock, you need to go knock. And like kept reiterating it over and over again. And I was like, no, I don't, no, I don't. I definitely don't need to do that. Those tools, are, those, that's an outdated mindset. You, it's, it's literally illegal for me to go knock on someone's door and be outside right now. Right? Mid-COVID. And, and so. You're going to get me arrested, uncle. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so we launched on Kickstarter and he called me like the day and he was like, 
I get it. Like, I totally get it. I'm like, do you really get it? He's like, I didn't believe you, but now that I see this, like, this yeah. is incredible. And, you know, to do that, like to do a $500,000 campaign, like, yes, our audience was super instrumental. Yes, the momentum we got on day one was super instrumental. But what helped us maintain that throughout the course of all the 30 days was our Facebook ad spend. And so we mm-hmm. had a couple of lines of credit that we were able to use. And those were basically like recycling, like we're going to spend this much and we're going to see this profitable return. <laughs> and if we don't see this return on ad spend figure, like we got to cut the ad spend. And right. fortunately for us, like our break even ROAS was like, a little bit lower than two and we were doing like a 5.5 to six um for which people was like, who don't know roas is a return on ad spend and that's yeah. really impressive <laughs> yeah and so like you know like we partnered with an incredible agency over in hong kong that is specifically like a kickstarter specific agency called brag b-r-a-a-g and like their whole process is built about like launching kickstarter campaigns so you don't have the ad data that like a that like a like a quicksilver would have, and so you kind of start from scratch, but they help you build that audience profile really quickly and and scale. But oh my god, like for someone who's never been on the ad spend side of things, like I've been on the content creation for it. Like we'll build all the coolest things you want, but I've never actually spent the money for the ads <laughs> right. and, until now. It's like okay, we're gonna spend uh, like X amount of thousand dollars today on this campaign, and you're like. Well, this better work. Like, <laughs> I was talking to a founder actually recently about how the difference between I run campaigns for companies spending ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a month on ads, and when you're, it's not a huge amount when you actually look at some of the bigger players in the world. But when that money becomes your own and you have to advertise your own <laughs> business, because I do it for my own business, and the scale is a little bit smaller, but you're putting out. That's like you start thinking about the correlation between. Oh well, that's breakfast that just got spent in <laughs> nine seconds you know my twelve dollars just went out the door in nine seconds and all of a sudden you're spending a hundred two hundred five hundred thousand dollars in an hour and it's like just crazy how quickly it disappears and it's really hard to see it because it's not tangible but then you see the sales start coming in and you realize the value and so it's but it's really scary and it becomes so based on performance and you're a lot more dialed into the actual numbers that are happening there whereas when it's somebody else's money it's not as much the same kind of life or death experience that you have <laughs> yeah and, and you know like the to speak about the way it used to be when i was at oakley facebook when it, i was at oakley when facebook ipo'd i remember it um really distinctly and Facebook didn't have an ad platform yet. They hadn't monetized. And so my job on the marketing team was like, all right, support sales. Sales is going to get this much to do what they need to do. You guys have this budget. This is your bucket. Get as creative as you want with this bucket and make sure it supports sales. And now because of like the tools that exist, like we know specifically if we put a product in front of people that has a person sitting in the chair, how does that perform versus someone not sitting in a chair? We have data on if we put a girl sitting in a chair versus a guy sitting in a chair. We have data on whether or not the chair is at the beach or if the chair is at the mountains. Like we know what performs the best from a creative standpoint in a way that like just five years ago, six years ago did not exist in any capacity. Like Nike threw just just do it on a billboard and a magazine cover (laughs) on the premise of like, just do it. You know, like they didn't know what the return was going to be. They kind of threw a Hail Mary and like, like to this day, you know, like there's still a lot of companies out there that haven't made the digital shift and they're still advertising with that type of methodology. But, oh my God, like seeing the ad money go out is just a drop to your gut. You're like, oh crap. (laughs) 
But then, like you said, Elliot, you know, the, the, the revenue starts coming in and you're like, oh, wow. And then the data comes in and you're like, holy crap. Like, this is really what we can possibly do here. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to reference that rad power bikes one again, because they talked about how they went from in a very similar way that park it's in that stage right now, they went from a crowdfunding campaign to selling on their own website, which is what we're now doing. And they're like the first day we did one sale. The next day we did four sales. The next day we did 13 sales. And we were like, oh my God, this is, this is, this is working again, you know, like, and they're getting the data back and we're in that same process now where it's like, we're seeing sales come through on our website and we're seeing more sales come through on our website and we're getting in the holiday, but, oh man, I, I still haven't gotten fully adjust, accustomed <laughs> to, to being comfortable with ad spend going out the door, but you know, yeah. you have to, it's, it's the, the good old adage of you got to spend money to make money. There's a really funny story from sometime back in 2003 when the president of Viacom, one of the biggest media conglomerates in the world, uh, went to go visit this little office in Silicon Valley with Larry Page and Eric Schmidt, and who are the founders of Google, for those who don't know. And there's a story about how Schmidt was talking about to uh, the CEO of Viacom, you know, our business is highly measurable. We know that if you spend X dollars on ads, you're going to get Y dollars in revenues. And that's just how it works. And I'm, I'm trying to see the story right now. But I remember the CEO of Viacom went in and he said, you're fucking with the magic. <laughs> he said, you're screwing with the magic because I'm selling $25 billion of advertising a year on some of my biggest networks, MTV, Nickelodeon, etc. Why would I want anybody to know what works and what doesn't? Because that was the model. And it still is for so many companies. But now these digital companies have come in. And for smaller players, it has such an impact. Because it really, uh, it really just... It makes the difference between whether or not you're going to be able to be successful on that first day. I mean, there's so many other factors, but it really can drive so much, uh, so much for your company. Yeah, and you know, like a, a perfect piece, and you, you reminded me of this is like there's a little thing that I talk to people sometimes about called uh, the digital trifecta, and it's Facebook, Adobe, and Shopify. And if you are accustomed to how Adobe products work, you can build anything you want to distribute it on Facebook. Facebook will go out and find all the people who engage and enjoy what it is that you're creating in Adobe. And they will direct you to your Shopify where all of the things that you've built in Adobe host and build your store and you'll drive conversion. And if you can get that triangular thing occurring over and over and over again, you know, it's a matter of really just having a quality product that people keep coming back for or stands up to the promises that you deliver or exceeds the promises that you deliver. You know, that's kind of the, the element that's either going to make or break that trifecta from working. But if you can teach yourself those three, three functions, know how to do things in Adobe, know how to use Facebook ads and know how to build stores in Shopify and optimize those stores to, to get the most data out of them as you can, you know, that's really where I think you can really be like the CEO and drive a business forward in the future. All tools, all of those, and maybe not Adobe, but not available five years ago. So really incredible to see uh, just the shift and also where we may be five years from now. So we've really used a lot of Steven's time and I'm loving it. I wish we could go on forever. I don't want to hold you all day. I know you got to get back to spending money on ads, which is your favorite thing. But before we go, I want to talk a little bit about what's next for you and for Parkit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So what's next for Parkit? Well, um, our website's parkitmovement.com. 
one of the things of that is that parkit.com was taken. So we had to come up with kind of a, a way to, to make it make sense. And, you know, being that it was a brand and an idea and a lifestyle first, uh, before it really was a product, we felt that movement was kind of the way that we wanted to go. You know, like it's, it's, a, it's about spending that time outdoors with the people you cherish most. And one of the things that we're really excited and really proud about for the future is that uh, because of the success of our Kickstarter campaign, we were actually able to partner with an organization called 1% for the Planet. For those of you who don't know, 1% of, for the Planet was founded by the founder of Patagonia, Yvonne Chouinard. And through that program, we're, he's able to connect businesses with nonprofits. And Parkit is proud to be one of the businesses that's now associated with 1% for the Planet. We've been connected with an organization called Sea Trees. Um, which plants trees in Bayak, Indonesia. So for every Voyager chair that we sell, we'll be planting one mangrove tree. Some cool fun facts about mangrove trees. Mangrove trees actually convert four times the amount of carbon in the air to oxygen than normal trees. So from, you know, uh, from a, like a carbon position, like we're really like hoping that we're able to scale this business and really make an impact in terms of, you know, recycling carbon back into oxygen for the planet. And so that's a piece of the movement that we're like really excited to see how that kind of came full circle for us was like, like, like park it movement. Well, the movement is the kind of the brand. And then as this started to come together, we were like, well, this is exciting and something that we're really proud of. And that's, that's what's in store for us in the future is, is building the movement piece of the brand and, and engaging with more of these types of opportunities, like 1% for the planet has created for us through sea trees. Um, in terms of the the business, you know, more so in terms of sales is, you know, we've got our eyes set on 2021 to be our first formal direct-to-consumer year. We'll be done with the crowdfunding stage. We'll have a warehouse with inventory. People will be able to land on the site, buy a product. We'll ship it the next day and it'll get to you in however many days it takes to get from our warehouse to your front doorstep. And so that's a piece that I know for us has been really, really like in the distance. It's felt like it's so far away. But, you know, it's getting closer and closer with every single tick on the clock. And that's just going to mean, you know, more opportunities for us to build and tell really exciting stories about the people who engage with our brand and, and the, the things that we like to do. Just a quick little like, idea of what it is we're planning to do with this is we want to take these chairs pretty much everywhere and we want to get to know normal people. We want to get to like, you know, like you guys mentioned, you're over in Portugal. We want to go over to Portugal, sit around a campfire with you guys and learn about what makes the culture of your area so great. Show us your favorite places. What's your favorite hike? If you surf around that area, what's one of the waves that you like to go to? We won't necessarily disclose the wave because there's a, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a surfer, we know that we can't necessarily, we don't want to promote secret spots of people, but we want to tell those stories and we want to, we want to share with the world digitally what our product is doing day in and day out for people tangibly. I mean, so that's going to be telling those stories and, and getting people more and more excited and, and sitting in our product and using it. So that's kind of the, the roundabout answer for what the future looks like. Well, Stephen, whenever you are legally allowed to come visit us here in Portugal, we'd love to have you. We could definitely find a, a beach to go sit around. I will cram a wine bottle into the uh, the cup holder and, uh, <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll product test uh, the chair in the real world. I'm telling you, I don't think you're going to have to cram it. I think it's going to fit in there, Perfect. Fit in there just it. right. So uh, we'll, we'll grab one of those. If you want to grab the port wine from Porto too, maybe we do one of those. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it. So Perfect. I just want to reiterate one more time because it's just so crazy. I think people just totally underestimate some of the work that goes into this product stuff. Steven's talking about next year for this thing that I think most people take for granted when they order something, right? Is that, you know, there's a product sitting in a warehouse, you go to a website, you click a button and it shows up at your door a couple of days later. 
just go back and think about all the things we talked about, all the work Steven's done, how much time he's put in, the the work into the product, the work into the audience building, the Kickstarter, now figuring out logistics. Like, And that's just to get to a place where, again, most people think, oh, I just go on this website and I buy this product and it's super easy. That's that's what's so crazy about everything that Steven's done and about and about product businesses. So if you guys are interested in checking out more, uh, parkitmovement.com is the site. Specifically, the chair is the Voyager chair. There's a really great video. When I went and checked out the chair, at first, it's, you know, it looks like an outdoor chair. It looks like a very pretty outdoor chair. And then you watch the video and there was actually the, the scene that did it for me was the, the guy puts it on his back and is walking. And it was like, oh. I would use that because whenever I'm going to the beach, I've got like six chairs because I've got my family and friends. And it's like, that's a giant pain. But man, if I get sleeping on my back. And so it's really cool because you almost this video kind of lets the product sell itself. It's great. So just go check out the site. It's parkitmovement.com. <laughs> the chair is the Voyager chair. Steven, thank you so much for everything today. It's been super informative and really interesting. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, you guys. Really appreciate the time. Definitely. Awesome. Next time you're over on this side of the Atlantic, uh, give us a holler. Definitely will. Cool. All right, guys. Great chatting. Thank you to all of you for joining us this week. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to learn more about entrepreneurship, please join our mailing list at hundreds.ofways.com. Leave us a review on your favorite podcast site or app, or just tell a friend about us. Until then, stay safe as you walk whichever of the hundreds of ways belongs to you.